2: Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes and.
0: My guest today is Michelle Lamont, who is a professor of sociology and of African and African American studies, and the Robert L. Goldman Professor of European Studies at Harvard University. She's got a fantastic new book. It's called Seeing Others How Recognition Works and how it can heal a divided world. I know you'll enjoy this pod.
2: Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid.
0: Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The colour of the heart. Michelle Lamont, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me. Uh, All right. It's going to be a slightly long first question, but I'm somewhat obsessed with framing. And this is a book that is very much about narrative and I think framing as well. And so you write in the introduction of your your new book, quote, in particular, I'm interested in how groups gain recognition from one another, how they come to be seen as valuable and what that recognition does for their quality of life, end quote. So you're a sociologist, not a psychologist, and not an economist. And that's pertinent to this topic because you also write, quote, psychologists tend to focus on what is happening inside the minds of individuals, while economists focus on material circumstances and the distribution of resources, end quote. So I guess my first question is, what's different in this topic from a sociological perspective?
1: Well, instead of focusing on the intracranial, I look at how we can organize societies differently so that we populate our environment with narratives and institutions that can uh, really broaden inclusion and give cultural membership to people. So it's more about, you know, how can we create seeds of change that have to do with how our society is organized and what messages are given to to uh, to people instead of the nudging industry, if you will, that really focuses on you know stimulus response that happens at the intracranial level? So it's a very big difference, I think.
0: Yeah, and so I think what I think what I'm hearing is that what you're saying is that it's not just an individual and the choices they make; it's not just a system, and what that system is, there's other things at play, those things can be at play. But but to really tackle this, you have to take all of it, which, of course, is harder.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think I focus specifically on the parts of the, the environment that other disciplines have not looked at, Uh, you know, narratives, tons of people have studied this, but I think that um, really to look at it systematically in terms of how it, you know, the narrative environment contributes to broadening inclusion is something original. And also, I talk a lot about the law and policymakers and how every policies, whether it's the creation of food stamp or same sex marriage, uh, are sending messages about who's in and who's out. And I think we can really read. Every decisions that are made by policymakers and and, in the Supreme Court in terms of who's in and who's out. So it's also a contribution of the book.
0: One of the and we're going to I want to talk a bunch about narratives, but one of the areas I want to talk about first is this idea of recognition, and in particular, and this might be a stretch, but let me let me kind of go for it. My wife, who's a tenured professor of comedy, has a comedy theory, uh, and her her three elements of of comedy is all comedy has uh, pain element of pain uh, element of distance. And an element of recognition. She yeah. used to call that truth. She stopped calling it truth when she realized it didn't have to be true. It just had to be recognizable. So this is in the context of, of comedy. And yeah. you write in, the, write in the book, quote, I propose that we shift perspectives to make sense of the role that recognition plays in our lives when i say recognition i'm not talking about mere identification as when you recognize someone on the street rather i mean seeing others and acknowledging people's existence and positive worth actively making them visible and valued reducing their marginalization and opening integrating them into a group end quote so this is when you're talking about recognition you are talking about big r recognition i i, I guess I'd exactly call it.
1: exactly I think in the book, I say also, it's not like I recognize this. this is an apple,
0: you know, it's which, not. Which, which, yeah, in comedy, sometimes that is what's funny is like, oh, my dad behaves like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: You're, but you're you're, move, you're moving beyond that. Yeah. The, yeah, and, yeah which exactly. is, I guess, the seeing, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the term recognition is complicated because, you know, if you say say defining someone as worthy, people understand what this means. But the word recognition itself is not as common sensical, if yeah. you you have to explain it, which is why the British edition of the book doesn't have the word recognition in the title. Oh, what does it have? It says uh, redefining worth instead.
0: Interesting. So, uh...
1: Yeah, the exact title is How to Redefine Worth in a Divided World. So they, they really made a very different, and the description of the book is somewhat different as well. So, <laughs>
0: well, that I, I mean, I imagine that's a good thing with regard to recognizing where you are. Different words mean different things. And, and yes. the importance is getting across this idea. And this is the whole point, right? It's it's not so much the way what you say as the way of what you say, the, the way someone else takes it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. So your experience. I, I want to talk a bit about your your othered experience because, in many ways, as you point out, you you could be considered the least othered person in terms of where you work. Um, you're you're a, a white person. You work at Harvard. You know, c- could not be. You know, in in, in some some senses more in, but you do have where where you grew up. So talk a bit about your your background.
1: Yeah. Well. Uh... The introduction of the book, I explained that I'm French-Canadian and uh, I grew up during the peak of the uh, nationalist movement in Quebec, where we were, the country was very much defining itself against American imperialism and against English-Canadian imperialism. So, and now here I am, I've lived in the U.S. since 83. I obviously have an accent. I raise kids who are American, but at the same time, I'm a leftist, so I'm not fully identified with an institution such as Harvard, which is very much perceived as extremely elitist and uh, Pseudo meritocratic, but I teach. You know, I studied in France with sociologists who really was a leading expert on denouncing meritocracy, you know, saying mm-hmm. a lot of this election. What has is now becoming common sense in the US about, you know, meritocracy is not a thing because uh, upper middle class people have so much advantages at the starting point. Well, the person, one of the key people who was uh, promoting this theory is the person with whom I studied in France so um, strangely enough you know I'm not at all what I seem to be I think on paper Mm -hmm. and also when I was a student in France I did my graduate work there I had friends who had been victims of the dictatorship in Brazil and I had other friends who had survived the Khmer Rouge you know so uh, experiences that really marked me in terms of my intellectual vocation and why I wanted to become a social scientist so
0: and I guess the other thing about this is your past, but also your present. So your yeah. this book is being—I mean, I know when you started the book, which was during the Trump administration, correct? Yeah, which makes makes perfect sense. But this pendulum, right, is in such an odd place mm-hmm. right now. And I mean, we even mm-hmm. we're literally we're taping this today. They've just set the court date, you know, for, for, for Trump. And, and then, you know, everything just, you could, you could list a series of events that have happened last week that stand in stark contrast to us ever thinking that we could live in a place where, what you're talking about this book like could, could happen. You you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And the big, the book when I started, it was promised, premised on the notion that the, you know, the arc of justice that Obama is, and Martin Luther King uh, were writing about would be rectified and would continue in the direction of greater justice and you know many people like the uh, uh, economist Albert Hirschman wrote about reaction, counter reaction, every social movement is creating you know the, the pendulum so uh, at the same time, I think things have improved, you know, in, in so many ways in terms of you know women's access to uh, the labor market. We can also, I think, read a lot of the changes in a very positive way. You know, LGBTQ rights, um, you know, the, the claims for pronouns and unisex bathrooms are also very much a sign of how much uh, queer people are now claiming. Membership And at the same time, in many contexts, res- getting them, you know, getting greater
0: membership. So
1: I'm more on the hope side, in part because I wrote a book on hope.
0: So, um, yeah. um, so there's some sort of staggering numbers in, in the first chapter. Um, you cite a Pew Foundation that from 1983 to 2016, the share of aggregate wealth going to upper in- income families increased from 60% to 79% while lower income families had only 4% of aggregate wealth, which was down from 7% in, in 1983. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, which is goes to the narrative uh, idea, was a study that was done about American sitcoms totaling 68 years of television that found that 80% of the show's characters were upper, upper middle class, while just 10% were working class. Of course, that means that even less were poor people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think the point how how can you make equal let's just say that something which you're unwilling to see mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i think i'm so glad you're pointing to that piece of evidence because this is something that many people don't know mm-hmm. and it means that working class people never see positive representations of them uh, on on the mainstream media and all they see is glorification of rich people or glorification of professionals. And this really gets, I think, I connect this directly with the opioid epidemic or, you know, that by despair, all we know about the ways in which uh, the working class has had a lot of problems thriving, you know, for, it's not been a story of, you know, thriving, it's been a story of steady decline for the last 50 years. So, uh the the first two books of the uh, first two chapters of the books are really downers because it explains not only the growing inequality, the figures you mentioned, but also the way in which a society that is so deeply organized around the celebration of professionals, college educated professionals and managers, is constantly sending to others the notion that they are outside. And that, you know, even if they don't have a college degree, no matter what they do, it's really, really difficult to feel worthy. So, uh, impressing the, the challenge that the majority, the vast majority of the population are facing. And I also mentioned the uh, growing uh, spatial isolation of the upper middle class. So it's easy if you constantly live in an upper middle class environment to totally ignore the extent to which your life is different from the life of the vast majority because you know the figures are clear the extent to which uh, you know marriage schools neighborhoods have become segregated on the basis of class over the last uh, 4 decades it's it's extremely impressive the extent to which it's happened and many americans have no clue
0: so yeah uh, during covid my son my, my grown son and i decided <clears throat> we went on this quest and this is well before the uh, sitcom the bear uh, aired which was we're looking for the greatest italian beef in chicago so we would we would like search on the internet and then we go to these neighborhoods <clears throat> and i realized maybe you know halfway through this journey i'm like what is it i'm experiencing i'm like oh i am completely out of my bubble i am yeah. i'm going to these you know places where there are lots of trump voters for example which yes, i don't live exactly. near in where, where i'm in chicago um and, and 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 every weekend we're going someplace different and it really changes you um yes. and the and the other thing that i i thought was so interesting you talk about this in the book is how we as a culture have attached a moral or ethical failure to those people who are poor yeah and i like is this like like from the Puritans on, or where, where, where does this come from? Because when you objectively stand away from it, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think central to this is of course, the American dream, the idea that anyone in this country has the opportunities to succeed. And that vision makes abstraction of what resources people have From birth, which are extremely unequal, and then also the notion of self-reliance. Where I wrote a book titled "The Dignity of Working Man," which is a very in-depth look into the life of working people in uh, Paris, in New York. I, the interviews were done in the early '90s, and I show really the centrality of self-reliance. You know, the workers I interviewed who lived in Central New Jersey. In, in the New York suburbs in general, were really going on and on about the sponges and how much they hate the sponges, because their own identity is about working hard and paying their bills, mm-hmm. and making sure that their kids stay out of trouble. So there's just they would define themselves as survivors. So the enormous amount of efforts that they put into surviving means that they have really great deal of disgust with people who don't have the moral strength to do this. So the sad story of this book is that they very quickly slide from making these moral boundaries, you know, rejecting people because they're lazy or don't have moral character to also drawing boundaries toward the poor. And then often it slips from I hate these people on welfare to I hate these people, these black people on welfare. So you Mm -hmm. can really see how their self-concept as hardworking people anchors the racism that some of them express, you know.
0: Um, It's interesting. Chapter three, you talk about the concept of grit and even self-care as failing to address the root mm-hmm. problem, and I and and I, I get. I mean, a lot of people talk about grit in in, in my world, and, and I understand it, of course, to a yeah. certain extent. But I think what you're saying is that's a, there's a narrative that can easily be corrupted.
1: Yeah, yeah, because you know the concept of grit, as Angela Duckworth formulated it, is very much you know. Uh, uh, an internal capacity to meet challenges, you know, it also kind of downplays the, uh, the environmental determinants. So instead I promote this notion of social resilience, which is really how do you create a society that gives people the tools they need to be able to encounter, uh, to deal with the challenges that come their way. So that's very different. You know, the idea, we can engineer our society differently.
0: Um. I thought it was also interesting. You, you talk about moral tribalism, uh, and yeah. it's like a "quote We know boundaries are changeable because we make them. They're created mm-hmm. through a process that we all participate in." I really want to talk about this because the the moral tribe argument, like the left, loves to talk about this, and 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 I and I get why, right? I understand. I'm you know part of that group. I get why. But you bring up a really interesting point in terms of uh, it. Basically, is not our vision being limited by just thinking in that. We're we're kind of doing the same thing,
1: yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and the people like Jonathan Haidt who are pushing tribalism, yep. they kind of presume a, an eternal human nature. And my point of departure is we have a lot of discourse on human nature, but people who write on human nature, I think, uh, are like archaeologists. You know, they have tiny bits of evidence from which they draw very large conclusion. So if we make abstraction of the discourse on human nature, we're left with nothing. We don't know what human nature is. And it's highly changeable. There are many periods in history where people were very generous toward those who were unlike them, and vice versa. So in another book, I really pushed the notion of groupness to understand what what makes that some moments in history, people are really sticking with their groups and unable to understand the other. This is highly variable and it oh. has to do with physical contact. You know, psychologists are pushing contact theory. There's a lot of evidence that it's true. The more contact, the more people are able to understand each other, but it has to do also with spatial separation. So societies like Brazil or um Japan, you don't have the same degree of spatial separation across classes that we have in the U S in the U S the fact that schools are funded by local taxes,
0: Right. pushes
1: an enormously high level of class separation. And many people don't know that either, you
0: know? Yeah, or, so, or yeah. if you live in a city like I live in, they built a highway to separate the black and brown people from the white people. Exactly, exactly. So, um, it's interesting too, the, the, you talk about Jonathan Haidt and, and certainly that's who I was thinking about, what would this work? And I recall a conversation I had with Nick Epley at the University of Chicago. And he, he really doesn't love the term around um, uh, microexpressions uh, microaggressions in part because he's like, it's so for you, I could be not liking you for so many different reasons for you to nail it down to this one is, is a a giant leap. And I never thought about it that way, but it's like, no, this, these things are terribly complex. And Mm -hmm. when we are, get so reductive, we're actually maybe ending up doing ourselves a disservice than a service with regard to the much larger goal that's going on here.
1: Exactly. And, you know, micro uh, aggression, like, let's say, you know, pushing someone when you get into a bus, those are, you know, very, very micro act. But there's some things that are way more important, like, like for instance, being overlooked or underestimated or ignored, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that I think a lot of that literature, the people who study those aspects of racism totally miss. In our book, Getting Respect... Where we did uh, over 400 interviews with Black people in the U.S., Brazil, and Israel, we found that the main thing that people talk about members of, uh, you know, racialized group when they talk about their experience with racism, they talk about what we call assault on the self, being yeah. underestimated. People think, "Oh, he's not going to be able to do this," or simply being invisible, like people don't ask your opinion ever. And this really adds to what epidemiologists talk about as the wear and tear you know of, of racism like it gets under the skin and it has huge impact on your health and on your subjective well-being so um mm, you know definitely. i think microaggression is an easy expression but it doesn't account for the complexity of what
0: people experience i'd love there's there's some uh phrases and and words that get tossed around uh a lot these days uh and i'd love just to get, so get your pov on them and you do talk about them in the book first one is the term woke Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> yes. I've, well, I've a, uh, Tell us about woke. Yeah. Well, I discussed the term in the book by putting it in historical context. And uh, in its first use, like uh, this uh, singer, uh, Badu, talked about it in terms of being aware of what's happening, you know, being vigilant to the forms of uh, uh repression that Black people were, uh you know, victim of. So being tuned in, if you will. And then, of course, at this point in history, it's being appropriated as a way to denounce the snowflake, the so-called snowflake demands for pronouns and toilets, you know, and it's used very much to dismiss or to Portray as illegitimate, uh, the, the needs of people who really feel excluded, like trans people. There's a reason why they want unisex bathroom because they don't identify, mm-hmm. uh, as, as binary, you know, and the sexual binary means nothing to them. And they want people around them to recognize it. And I think it's very easy to simply ignore their needs as, um, Something flaky or something overly sensitive, you know, and to dismiss the whole Gen Z uh, generation for, um, you know, being uh, talking about traumas that in fact are not traumas. But mm-hmm. <laughs> can we tell Black people that being ignored or invisible is not a trauma it's just being flaky to ask for attention well it's easy to say that when you're in a position of you know power just Mm -hmm. as you know women uh have suffered also from being silent in the background, serving tea, you know, they could have been denounced equally for uh, asking too much. So it's not unusual that populations that have been marginalized are perceived as asking too much. So time will tell, you know, at the same time, we know since we have the 2024 presidential election looming uh, yeah. that uh, more needs to be done in terms of getting on board especially working class people who may be extremely impatient with with woke culture and how do we create a bridge between uh uh them and the progressives who are, you know, supportive, who are opposing Trump. I think that's one of the big uh, stakes that are looming that we need to figure out really, really quickly. So
0: So when you talk about that in the book, I immediately thought of an exercise we created uh, at the Second Science Project, which you and I were talking about before we started. And uh, it came in response, I'm going to ask you for a yes and question in a little bit to end the podcast because this yes and concept and improvisation is very well known. It was the thing that we taught to the scientists, our very first exercise we taught them because they wanted to see what, what that looked like. And and the idea is very simple, right? I mean, you, you what we know from Behavioral economics tells us that people's default position is to say no or do nothing, and yeah, it's easier to lay on the couch. I think we all get that. Uh, and so the the idea of yes and essentially forces you to not just a, um, uh, be positive about something, but additive to that, relentlessly additive, and it gets you to very interesting places comedically. Uh, but we we find that as well, just in, in in life in general. So the scientists ask us, they're like, well, what do you? What do you do when you don't want to yes and the person across from you you fundamentally disagree with them and we didn't know and they didn't know and so we we kind of went away to our sort of improv playhouse and they went away and looked at different literature and yeah and we have a paper coming out next year about this uh the idea that we settled on we've been conducting this with thousands of, of of people is um an exercise called thank you because so we have two people share even a minor disagreement like chunky peanut butter or smooth peanut butter and mm-hmm. uh, we, we have them try to convince each other of it. And that gets you to the normal places of, of nothing. And then we ask the participants to use thank you because. So thank the person for the information they shared and find something, no matter how small, that you agree with and what they say. Mm-hmm. And what we've discovered is over time, they stay in the conversation longer. They find points of agreement. They're, they're more interested in what's going on the reason yeah. the, the reason the paper's taking so long is we decided to also study just one side doing the thank you because I still see. Works. still works
1: Oh, okay that's really interesting because one my intuition as you describe this is to think well it's about recognition if
0: mm-hmm. you
1: talk you have to acknowledge
0: <laughs> yes. that the and other has talk- another perspective you have to keep talking <laughs> you have to keep talking yeah, yeah, and, and also but- and, and also the intent behind the talking like, so i think it's very hard to, to say thank you yeah. uh, and 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 not sort of mean it or, or have yeah. the earlier the, for the other person. And then that second part, which is kind of the yes and to it, right. Is, is yeah. that I'm going to take this one little step further
2: and find, yeah. find
0: something. Uh, so what the, the, the way, when I have to teach this, the, yeah. what I have to say is when my daughter got sick, one of her best pr- uh, friend's parents were anti-vax and uh-huh. this is well before that became fashionable. Um, but you know, we didn't want to have conflict. And, and so my, my thank you because with them, as I said, thank you, because you care for your girl so much, you don't want to hurt by vaccines. I care for my girl so much. I don't want to hurt by someone who's not vaccinated. The the important things we care about are girls.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that was,
0: we were good. Like the kids FaceTime, they did other stuff. It was all, like, it didn't, yeah, they couldn't be in the same room together, but it didn't create this bigger sort of like issue. It yeah, didn't it, become a moral exactly. judgment of like, I think you're wrong. And I do, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. it, it didn't even come about that. And it's like, oh, that's a whole different thing that I don't think think people know is available to them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the idea that we can coexist, even if we disagree or we agree to disagree <laughs> because we acknowledge. As if we haven't
0: been are. doing that forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Just, I mean, what do you, what is it? What, like what? So clearly we have been living in disagreement with other human beings for Ever since there were humans. So, what is it about now that suddenly we can't do it?
1: Well, what, yes, that's a problem. I think it's always been a case, you know, Mm -hmm. that. Societies are both ridden by conflict, but also require collaboration. And we've always had. And if you think of what a long term relationship is about, a marriage too, you know, I mean, you constantly negotiate and sometimes you dig in your heels and sometimes you decide to really be generous. And I think, um, you know, I mean, there's, I could mention the names of the sociological authors who, who have. Really develop one or the other face uh, of the coin, but I think it's truly the yin and yang of social relationship. You know, we need each other, so there's a lot of compromise and and uh, coordination. And the division of labor requires coordination, like the great classic, the book titled The Division of Labor by Emile de Crime. What I'm saying now is like for each part of these ideas, they're canonical books in the history of my discipline that are exactly about that. And you've had, you know, the power structured theory and the conflict theory opposing the functionalist theory, which was all about social integration. So my take on this is both, both are required for collective life, and we have no choice about this, you know, but now you have also an enormous amount of discourse on polarization, and on false news and on, you know, which is coming at such a rapid pace. If right. we were to eliminate all the discourse and the analysis on it, it would be experienced very, very differently. If you remember when the essential workers team emerged during the uh-huh. pandemic, there was, and the banging on the pants, there were at the same time enormous feelings of, of, uh, you know, collaboration, and we're in it together. And we just have to, you know, work together, work through this together. So, uh, and many people experience great moments of togetherness also during that period. So, uh, yeah,
0: I mean, th- so yes, that's happening at the same time, Asian people are being targeted on on the street. So to to exactly. your, your point, these both things, and I guess there's no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy. This is not a, there's not yes. a frame that we don't understand. <laughs> <or> shouldn't understand. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I, we talked a bit about recognition and you go a, a, a step deeper when you talk about recognition chains. So yes. tell, us what, tell us about where I found this fascinating. Tell us about yeah. recognition.
1: Well, the idea is that uh, I give the example of uh, black photographers uh, like uh, Hank Willis Thomas, who created a piece of art in the public gardens here in uh, Boston Commons uh, of uh, Martin Luther King embracing his wife. And it was extremely controversial because seen from a certain perspective, they were headless. One of the arms looked like a penis. So it created a huge debate about public art. Well, this is a very important person because he uh, created a a YouTube video that was massively diffused through uh, the collaboration with a a philanthropic organization, uh, the Black uh, Man uh, Achievement Campaign, I think is the name. It's it's escaping me right now. I can tell Mm -hmm. you a little bit later. But um, the idea is that in order to scale up messages, uh, artists such as uh, him really need uh, the support, the financial support of philanthropies. So, through the book, I gave several examples of how creators, stand up comics, you know, TV, think of Black Panthers, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I interviewed the VIP, the v- VP for global programming at Netflix as I was uh, doing the book. And Black Panther was a massive phenomenon in Africa, in India, you know, I mean, putting Black people on the streaming services globally. This is quite something else in terms of uh, capacity to intervene. We're talking scaling up at the global level. So it's really about, I mentioned division of labor earlier. So collaboration, people who share a common Project, and we're all pushing in the direction, in the same direction of, you know, trying to create a society that is more inclusive. So that's basically what the concept is trying to capture. And it's tied to network analysis, you know.
0: uh, You you talked to my friend Ai Jen Poo at the the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We did a program with her group at Carrying Cross Generations around improvisation and caregiving. And it was a, it was multifold. Once we used our, uh, exercises to sort of work with caregiving communities. But then we also created content and narratives and stories and ideas, because the reality that she sort of exposed to us and became very clear once it was in our heads was, this is another group of people we don't see. Yeah. And we, we had a, a, a really brilliant uh, economist on who, who wrote, a he's got this whole book about food as it relates to ec- economic principle. And when he talks about the caregiving communities, like, well, we just don't, we, we don't pay them. So many of them are just not paid. And if you're not paid, you're not part of like the GMP, like you don't exist. And it's, it's which is insane given what is more important than, than, than that. And, and and, yeah, Yeah. Scott Galloway talks about all the time about this country just seems to talk a lot about caring for children and then all their actions go the other way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And her work was so important in part because it's tied to the film Roma which incidentally was made possible by the Ford Foundation because they have an organization called Just Film that really subsidized the creation of that film. So uh, that's a really, really good example of of, uh, recognition. Uh, And my colleague, uh, also part of the recognition, my former colleague, Matt Desmond, his book, Poverty by America, is also very much about the fact that the upper... Professionals and managers don't pay the guy who mows the lawn and don't pay the babysitter. There's always this idea of trying to, to skim on how much money you're going to give to the, all the help that allows you to keep up with your busy life and to raise your children, et cetera. And that's very, I think, not viewed as really creating poverty in America, but that's exactly what Matt's book is about and why it's powerful, I think, because it makes everyone, you know, re-examine how big tippers are they, you know, do you tip your your waiters in a way that is that allows them to make a decent living, you know?
0: So, so uh, you have some faith in Gen Z coming up. It's, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I do. What, tell. Tell. Us why you? Well, have the
1: reason it. is because the American dream is not working for. For them anymore, that it worked for the millennials. And I think, as we all know, the pandemic was really hard on them. Many of them have had mental health issues. And their solution is to create the world they want to live in right now and not when they are 60. You know, they don't want to jump on uh, the uh, hedonistic treadmill of consumption and saying, I'm going to get a bigger house and a bigger car and a bigger bigger Peloton bike and that will make me happy later. Instead, they believe that living together in a more inclusive society. In a more caring society, a less hierarchical society is how we're going to get happier. I'm not saying they all do this, but the we interviewed for the big uh, book, 80 Gen Zs, and they all uh, really uh, stress that they want a society that is more caring. And they have this T-shirt that says, be a kind human. So there are major themes in the way they approach their life. And one of them is the idea of social inclusion, and they are very involved in politics too. So they're pushing it a lot. Of the current revival of the work, workers' uh, unionization push, is tied to the involvement of Gen Zs. So uh, I um, and they're also rejecting a lot a life that's totally organized around work and the ideal worker of the person who's going to work 60 hours a week for what, you know, so they also embrace the, the work life balance, which is uh, I think a, a very good thing as well. So they're, extremely critical of my generation, the boomers, because they thought we were, you know, hopeless workaholics who were really, many of them, they thought, uh, many of us, they thought were in great need of psychological intervention. <laughs> if you have any Gen Zs, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um,
0: so
1: <clears throat> I think as uh, boomers, we have two choices. Either we think of them as losers, it will never amount to anything, or we try to understand what, Their perspective, where does it come from and how their life conditions lead them to make the choices that they're making. And I think, frankly, we have something to learn from them.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and you talk about this in the book, too. The boomers were also uh, critical to the civil rights movement. Absolutely. And
1: that's where the Gen Zs are full of it, because they totally underplay, you know, in the introduction of the book, I explained one of the reasons that made me passionate about inequality is I had to empty the dishwasher every day while my brother mowed the lawn once a month, you know, and I felt it was deeply mm-hmm. unfair. So these forms of everyday feminism in my generation, it was absolutely crucial. We broke a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of barriers and they totally underestimate and the sexual revolution, too, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, my generation, I mean, they, it was really pre pre AIDS, you know, yeah. uh, there were lots of we lived our sexuality very differently than my parents generation did. So they don't understand that they're very ignorant of the past, those Gen Zs.
0: So it's it's interesting, I'm sitting here, that I had a conversation with my 25 year old, who is in two weeks moving to Atlanta for eight months to work at a Shakespeare theater, he quit his mm. corporate job, because he really wants to be an actor. And I remember him saying to me, I have no illusions. I will ever own a house. Yeah. Uh, Which was number one, very like, Oh, like I, that didn't, it didn't dawn on me that that wasn't going to be available to me. Yeah. I'm 50. uh, I just turned 57. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is because he's moving to Georgia, he's like, Oh, this is great. I'll vote down here. So immediately he was also thinking, playing the odds of what I need to do to help what what's going on in the world and where he doesn't want to have happen in the world right now. Right. And so, so it's just such an, uh, what an incredible thing, both in terms of when I relate to what, how my parents talked about their life, where, where I am and where he he is. It's yeah.
1: And he decided to not postpone his decision until, you know, and I have a son who, uh, currently wants to be a firefighter and the reason he wants to be a firefighter is because he wants to help people and he thinks it's a great way to have a meaningful life Mm -hmm. so uh you know it's an interesting i have to do a lot of uh, self-examination when i think about my reaction to his decision you know and he also wants to move to uh uh, my New Hampshire to be able to
0: vote. A so. firefighter in New Hampshire, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. So. I mean, I, I I recall like I'm the youngest of six boys, and when I told my dad I wanted to work in theater, he mm-hmm. he was thrilled, and and yeah. and it was because because everyone else was like a a you know uh, an architect or a banker yeah. or whatever, uh, but he had always wanted to be, and I didn't want to be an actor, but he you know he wanted to be an actor and he wanted to li- li- live in that world, and he was. And, and I just I, like the gift I was given, and I think this was this, this is a gift, is just thinking anything's possible.
1: Exactly. Like, but anything. the conditions were so different,
0: you know, the like conditions were different. And, and, but the, and the privilege I came from, like it just yeah. being a, a, a cisgendered white man, you yeah. know. Is the, uh, a world of difference. And it was open. It was open to me. There were no. Yeah. There were n- zero closed doors. Yeah.
1: and you know, I left for Paris to do my graduate work uh, at uh, in 1978, and I was 20 years old. And my mother was really freaking out about me living for Paris at this age. But at the same time, the job market was such, and I studied political theory. You imagine that's not a growing field, right? Yeah. And it's very much similar to your story, except that when I came back. Back to Canada in eighty three, there was the job market in academia was not very good. So I went to Stanford, and that's how I ended up American because I met my my partner there. But all this to see, we're of a generation where things were possible, whereas our kids are very aware that things are difficult. But at the same time, they don't want to just necessarily become cogs in the system, right? No. we want to have a meaningful life. The alternative is to be hopeless. And many of them are hopeless. Many of them have major mental health problems. So I think that's become so acute that it forces them to, um, to really contemplate the alternative. So uh,
0: yeah, okay, we always end the podcast asking our guest for a yes and story. So a time in your life, could be work could be life where and i this feels like a layup for you uh, where you didn't just say yes. You said yes. And uh, you affirmed and contributed uh, in a way that maybe surprised you. Do you have a yes and story for
1: us? Yes, but it's still unfolding. As soon as you mentioned, you were going to do this. I thought of accepting to do a trade book because my agent, uh, uh, who's had been following my work for several years, um, really thought I would be good at doing this, you know, and she felt, okay, I had been president of the American Sociological Association, I'd written books that were well received by my peers. But she said, you have things to say that you want to tell everyone, Mm -hmm. and just go for it. And I was very hesitant. But then I said, sure, I'll do it. (laughs) <laughs> and now that the book will be published uh, very soon, you know, and I I do write up eds, and of course they get turned down. It's hard. It's very very hard. So, but I kind of hang to the idea that with conversations like the one I'm having with you now, it can make a difference, you know. Yeah. So I kind of have to hang on to the hope that uh, these exchange really make the whole suffering worth it.
0: <laughs> well and i think to this our earlier is a very point sincere answer to you it is no and i think to our earlier point is you you probably couldn't have had one without the other you couldn't write the trade you know uh, uh book which is for a popular press for people to that uh, without having done the sort of academic work that maybe exactly. stayed in in exactly. that world and vice versa in some regards and so, you know so everyone's journey ha- has to you know and and that's that's what this book is and it's like I just said this to my friend Claudia the other. <laughs> I said this morning, which is like if we could all just have like a beat of grace with each other. Yeah. Every like for every like all the interactions during the day, like if everyone just did that with each other, like we could change a lot because it's, it yeah. does feel to to me that so much is is I'm going to assume bad intent, and yes. I am going to then you know, uh, throw that out there. And I'm, and what I'm saying too, is even if someone does that with you, if you could take a beat of grace, it's probably going to come back. It, it It's going to get better as opposed to yeah. still getting worse. Maybe not always, but enough that that would change things.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, driving in Boston would be very different. <laughs>
0: driving in Boston would. I have driven in Boston. You are a thousand <laughs> oh, percent correct. Oh, my gosh.
1: Where people are going F you all the time. All the war,
0: it's the, the worst. The
1: level of aggressivity is off the roof, you know. So, uh, yes. At yes, least, at the least the your world. book is not trying
0: to solve driving in Boston, because I think that <laughs> actually is impossible. Uh, the book is called Seeing Others how recognition works and how it can heal a divided world. Michelle Lamont, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. It's a treat, Kelly. (laughs)
2: Getting to Yes and is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at The Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about The Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at, works at secondcity.com.